Well, good morning, everyone. open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. And as we continue our series on the lives of Jacob and, well, Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Joseph, Lord, I, I pray that you would just impress upon us the meaning of these texts and these great men, their successes, their failures, and, and really how they apply to us in redemptive history, what they have to teach us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Pastor Mike preached on one of the trickier passages in Scripture. So I told you I was kind of envious uh, the week before. I thought that I was going to be preaching on that one uh, and I, I, um, I've been preaching through this uh, series. We've been preaching through this series. And, and, uh, and so I got the coat of many colors. And, you know, we've all grown up with the coat of many colors. There was actually a lot more to that passage. But Judah and Tamar is not one that's often taught in any children's Sunday school class, right? You haven't really heard that passage a lot. And so it's exciting to preach on. Uh, and there's a lot of just ickiness in that passage. It's kind of like gross when you read that passage, but there's a lot of intrigue in it, and you wonder, okay, what in the world is going on with that particular passage? And like he said, when you're reading that passage, what in the world is going on in the context of Genesis? Like, why in the world? And we're just assuming Moses wrote it. It doesn't really say Moses writing Genesis, but I'm just going with Moses. But uh, why would Moses, or the author of Genesis, whoever it was, why would they put that passage in this part of Scripture? I mean, it seems to be out of place. And as we looked at it, uh, we, we saw there's just kind of all kinds of weird stuff. And anyway, it was just kind of, yeah. I mean, Judah marries the wrong kind of woman. He has some really wicked sons. You've got, like, one of the sons spilling his seed on the ground because he's not marrying the woman he's supposed to be. He's not marrying the daughter-in-law that he's supposed to be marrying. He's not having kids with her like he's supposed to be having kids with her. And then he ends up, right, uh, walking along the road one day, and he decides, huh, you know, I'm kind of bored. I need to go sleep with a prostitute. And he runs to sleep with a prostitute who actually is his daughter-in-law who's trying to fool her father-in-law, because she knows, obviously, if she dresses up like a prostitute, that he's going to come visit her, which tells you that everyone knows that Judah sleeps with prostitutes, right? And she pretends, and she says, well, I'm going to be the prostitute, and Judah comes and sleeps with the prostitute, and she says, well, I need uh, some signs that you're going to actually pay your debts, and she takes his sword, and or, sorry, his staff, and his seal, and his cord, and says, all right, I'll take this, and then books off with him. And then when she's found to be pregnant, Judah, the father-in-law, is so righteous, right? He says, well, you're pregnant. You slept out of wedlock. You must be burned, which was even hardcore for that day and age, even though he's been sleeping with prostitutes the whole time, right? I mean, you can see him turning to Mrs. Judah and saying, <laughs> well, that's pretty wicked. We don't tolerate that here, honey. We don't tolerate that kind of cheating, right? Uh-huh. And then she shows him the cord, and he's like, you can imagine just a white ashen face. Oh, okay. 
She's like, this is the dude who slept with me. That's me. Okay. So he lets her live. So what do we do with that story? Right? What in the world? Now, to his credit, he publicly admits it and he lets her live. So we see that this, you know, is just another regular family, right? Well, it does show us one thing. The Bible, it's raw. It's something that I really love about the Old Testament. I love reading the Old Testament, grew up reading the Old Testament. You see, as believers, we think that being prim and proper is the way of the Lord, isn't it? Right? I mean, if you've read the the New Testament, that's kind of how you believe it. And if you've grown up in certain styles of churches, you've grown up being prim and proper, and we don't hear ucky stuff. And then you turn to the Old Testament, and you read this nasty stuff, And if you really read it, you're like, I can't really tell my kids this story. Let's just flip. I can't tell my kids this story. What did Lot's daughters do with Lot? That is disgusting. I can't tell them that story. Okay. Maybe life isn't so prim and proper, and the Bible isn't so prim and proper. God, you're gross. Don't you know how to be prim and proper? but it's in the Bible. Well, maybe Jesus taught the Father how to be prim and proper. I had a a gentleman one time tell me that the God of the Old Testament was anger and all this other stuff, and that he kind of learned by the time he got to the New Testament. I thought, wow, wow, how big of you. You have seen that the Lord has learned his lessons and has become, I presume, more like more like you. Not cocky there. So the Old Testament stories are blunt. They're raw. They are, dare I say it, godly. So if we can't handle them, might I suggest that says a little bit more about us than it does about these stories. Why can't we as Christians handle some of these stories? Why can't we handle some of the rawness of this? And if we can't handle the rawness of the stories, <clears throat> then how, how do we handle the rawness of life out there when it intersects with our friends, our families, non-believers, and believers? Because life gets icky. How useful will we be in this kind of society? Just something to think about as we begin to dig into this story. Now, it turns out that the story of Judah and Tamar aren't weird or aren't as weird or out of place as we thought they were. After all, when you read them in the context of the Joseph stories. Now, Pastor Mike explained that last week that they were weird And we saw the Joseph story, coat of many colors, but now we're turning back to Joseph. And so first you're like, wow, Moses took a really weird turn. However, notice this at the beginning of the Joseph story, Genesis 39, 1 through 3. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, who had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord, and anytime you see Lord in all caps, it's Yahweh, that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So the fact that the author ends the last story with Joseph being dropped off at Potiphar's house or sold to Potiphar and begins this story with Potiphar means that the the story in between was encompassed by what? Potiphar and Potiphar. He's telling you that that middle story is to be paid attention to. There's going to be a comparison and a contrast with that middle story with Joseph. That's what Moses is using. This is how Hebrew authors do it. It's something that we need to pay attention to. So, right from the get-go, we are surprised why. Joseph is sold into slavery, and we think, wow, this is going to really stink. But the Lord has prospered him and blessed him in the house of his slave master. How does this happen? He's a slave, and yet he's blessed. Right from the get-go, he rises, and not only does the Lord bless him, the Lord blesses his master because of Joseph. Now, that seems weird, but it is what's happening. The Lord works in mysterious ways. I can't explain it, but it does happen. It was looking bleak for him when he was sold by Judah, who, by the way, is an intermediate, right? Okay, don't miss that. But he's blessed, and it's relatively quickly. Now, quickly in the reader's eyes, right? Quickly in our eyes may not be quickly in Joseph's eyes. It probably wasn't very quick when Joseph was thrown into the pit and then marched off into slavery, right? Probably seemed like a long time. And then he's in Potiphar's house, and he probably had to work his way up. So this may have been years, and years at a time may not seem very quick. For instance, I've got uh, one of my children is going through a really rough time right now. I've been going through a rough time for a little bit of time. And for him, it does not seem, it probably seems like it's been going on for quite a while. When you're on the rear end of the horse, receiving what's coming out of that side of the horse for a little bit of a while, uh, for a while uh, things may seem like they've been taking a long period of time, right? I mean, much longer than when you're sitting on the back of a horse riding down a beach with the wind flowing through your hair and everything is good and you're seeing the sight around you. We've all been on the rear end of the horse receiving that side of things, right? And when you're receiving that side of things, it's awful. Joseph was on that part of things. He was sold into slavery and he had to work his way up and for a while all he's doing is getting pooped on endlessly. Life seemed long. But from the reader's perspective, when we're reading this part of Scripture, it seems like it goes quickly. Just like the Hebrews, 400 years of slavery. Ah, that's not very far. That's pretty quick. The story just moves on. But for them, probably a long period of time, right? I mean, that's just kind of the way it kind of goes on. Life wasn't fun. But eventually, Joseph climbs to the top. Genesis 39, 5 through 6. The Lord blessed the house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything 
but the food that he ate. Imagine that, a master leaving everything in a slave's charge. He's faithful to God, and the Lord is with him. Character is built in trials, folks, and the Lord blesses him. The Lord is blessing him. Joseph is blessed. And then he catches the eye of Mrs. Potiphar. You see, we all think good looks are a blessing. But not when you are hot and you're under a people that have conquered you. Right? Because if you're hot and you're under a people group that has conquered you, then you will be taken advantage of. Right? You'll be taken as a hare into a harem. You'll be taken for whatever. And Joseph, he hot. And Mrs. Potiphar is like, hey, baby, why don't you come help me with my jammies? And then we'll do what comes naturally. And Joseph is a man of God. And here's where the story gets interesting. Now, Joseph was a handsome man in Genesis 39, 6 through 7, in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. That's what he's saying. Now, this passage comes right after Judah and Tamar. Judah turns aside to seek a prostitute, as Pastor Mike showed us last time, right? It really is kind of out of place for them to say that in that kind of literature. He turns aside to look for a prostitute. Joseph, on the other hand, is doing what he is supposed to be doing, and Mrs. Potiphar goes out of her way to get Joseph to try to turn aside. Joseph does not turn aside. Judah does turn aside. Judah's in the line of Jesus, and he sells Joseph into captivity. So Joseph is a slave and has every reason in the world to get busy with his master's wife for revenge. He's a slave, and even as the chief of slaves, you know, still a slave, he could get revenge on his master here. Even as that, he refuses to do it, right? Judah, on the other hand, is the leader of his clan. Well, a subsect of his clan. Jacob's still there, but he's the leader of a whole group. And he turns aside to go for a prostitute. Joseph could do it for revenge, and nobody would blame him. And he knows he's going to get punished if he doesn't get under, that he, if he doesn't go with this. No one would blame him, and yet he refuses. Judah will not get punished at all, and he does it. Not only does Joseph turn her down once, she keeps after him day after day, and he turns her down. He even does it when he's alone with her. How many times have you heard from people that they couldn't help themselves? Joseph has every opportunity and was pursued time and time again. So the character of the one is much greater 
than the character of the other. Now, you could say that one brother struggles with sexual temptation at a much higher degree than another, and that's true. There are some of us who struggle with that much more than others. Some people just aren't tempted in that way, and all of us have our own temptation things, right? Some people struggle with anger more. Some people struggle with pride more. We all struggle with our own sins more, and so maybe Judah struggles more than Joseph. But here's the thing. Joseph does a thing that the New Testament tells us to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 to 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person commits a sin against his own body. So he runs from it. Now, this is a tricky teaching because in the modern church, sexual sins have become considered the worst of all sins right? Why is this? I've done a lot of thinking about this through the years. Uh, it's always bothered me that these have become the worst of all sins. Uh, just maybe as an Anglican, I've read C.S. Lewis on this. C.S. Lewis talks about that too, why, why we worry about a prostitute in church and thinking. He, he has this whole talk about um, at, the end of, um, um, at the end of Mere Christianity, he talks about why a prostitute in, sitting in church um, gets judged by an older woman sitting in church, and she shouldn't be here. And he says, actually, pride is one of the worst of all sins. And the woman sitting there in church thinking the prostitute shouldn't be there is in much greater danger than the actual prostitute sitting there. Anyway, what he's saying is there are all kinds of sins that are at our very core. So how did sex become one of the worst of all sins. Well, with the possible exception of the Baptist church, where sex is said to lead to dancing. But aside from that, (laughs) why are sexual sins seen to be the worst? Well, part of this comes from early Greek thinking, not Jewish thinking, but Greek thinking, that infected the early church, especially the monastics. Various sects, such as the Stoics, taught that denial of the body is the highest good. Denial of the body is the highest good. So if you were in the early church, if you were a Stoic, what would happen? If you were a Stoic, you thought that we should starve ourselves, that we should fast, that we should not drink water, that we might flog ourselves, that we should do all kinds of bodily disciplines to keep ourselves um, holy and pure. That these hardcore disciplines made us more spiritual. We also could be hermits, and hermits would like go out in the desert and they would separate themselves from other people for a long periods of time. That if we did all of these things, these things would make us spiritually stronger than everyone else. And this thing become, it begins to pollute the church because a lot of early church fathers really liked the Stoics, Right? So extreme fasting, denial of water, living as hermits, flogging, extreme acts, physical pain, denial of sleep, sex, etc., become huge, and they become merged with particular Christian lifestyles to form monastic communities and even what was required of clergy around 1100 A.D. Now, this was not a thing that was required before that, but it's a very clear sign that it was not of Scripture, Jesus or the apostles or of the church. But in such an environment, sex became to be seen as more and more of a temptation than as a good. And this has been passed down through the centuries. But even in our modern culture, the consequences of sexual sin are much harder to hide than the consequences of many other sins until abortion came along, right? We could get rid of it. We could bury that. 
And because we spend so much time fighting against this temptation, the church has spent precious little time looking at what is good about it. But the power of sexual sin is overwhelming, and the consequences of failure here with a man as powerful as Potiphar could be deadly. So Joseph flees, and his coat is taken. And once again, we have an important link. Joseph's cloak is going to be used once again to propagate a lie. And that links us to the first story of Joseph, right? Once again, remember, Joseph's cloak was taken and dipped in goat's blood. What did the goat's blood link us to? That linked us to the first lie that was told to Jacob, or sorry, told to Isaac, right? Jacob dipped in goat's blood, sorry, goat's blood, sorry, excuse me. Jacob's lie to Isaac, right, about Esau and the birthright had to do with goats. They cooked goats, they put goat skin around it. That was all linked there. But here Moses shows once again that Joseph is innocently charged. But this is also intriguing for another reason. Notice what Mrs. Potiphar does, 39, 16 to 18. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice, I cried. He left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So the comparison here is is meant to be made to Tamar. When she is found pregnant, she is accused by the men of being immoral. Here, Joseph is accused by the misses to men of being immoral. Judah, the leader of the tribe of Israel, tells them to burn his own daughter-in-law for doing the same crime that he did. Potiphar, the pagan, he just throws Joseph in jail. Even he isn't as wicked as Judah. How does that happen? What happens there? Tamar produces Judah's belongings, which he gave to her, and which she ran off with to prove her innocence, which produces a confession and repentance from Judah. Mrs. Potiphar uses Joseph's belongings to once again convict the innocent to Joseph. And so you see the links all the way through the story. So what in the world do we draw from these two stories? What's the author trying to show us? Well, in both of them, We read sordid tales of seduction and sex and burning and false accusations and prostitution. Basically, we see messy, messy lives, and we just want to take a shower afterwards. Tamar, at the end, is saved, but she's never allowed to marry and has two kids by her father-in-law. Joseph is sent to prison. And so at the end of both of these stories, we want to say, this stinks. Life is unfair. What kind of God does this? And we scream it out. And I bet that they probably screamed it out as well. How in the world, God, can I get taken off into captivity and then have this happen again? What in the world? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had that happen in your life? Thing after thing after thing after thing. And you shake your fist at the sky. What kind of God are you?
But once again, Joseph rises to the top in prison. Now it's still prison, but he rises to the top. And Tamar has two sons. Now one of them is Perez. And we know, okay, there's a weird story. There's a, there's a rope tied around Perez's, uh, who cares? It's just Perez. Well, here's the thing. We're going to read a little bit later that from Perez comes Boaz. And there's a, Boaz is going to marry this, this woman named Ruth. Huh. Well, Ruth's in the Bible. Boaz in the Well, the great, they're the great grandparents of King David. Yeah, that King David. You know, in the line of Jesus. Yeah, that Jesus. And Joseph, he's going to have a big part to play in the salvation of Israel, which will point to Jesus as well. So it turns out that trials and tribulations, we don't always see the point at the time. But even in their lives, God was faithful. And he was faithful for Joseph in a massive way. Tamar, it was a smaller way. She didn't see it at the time. But man, was that going to pay dividends for all of us. Even in her life, he was faithful nonetheless. He'll, he'll be faithful in your life as well. It's just so stinking hard to see it sometimes, especially in the mess. He has a plan. I just, we just don't, I don't always know what it is. Now, sometimes we're going to see it right away. Sometimes we're going to see it long afterwards. Sometimes we're just not going to see it. Sometimes we'll see it in the afterlife. That's what we're going to have to wait for. But one thing we can always trust, God is good all the time. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Amen.